Uh, this is your host, Aram Al-Kumuf, and you're listening to another episode of the Product Innovation Series. Today, I'm joined by Marlon Hope, uh, the, who's the head of product at Netasia. Uh, it's a software that detects and prevents bot attacks in a completely different way to the competitors in the market. Uh, Marlon, thank you so much for uh, coming on our show today and uh, giving me the time. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Uh, so the first question I have was something that came out of a conversation we had before. And I thought it was really interesting. Um, and I think it would be really great for the audience to hear as well as apparently from what you told me, a computer game made you a better product owner. <laughs> so, so tell me more about that. Um, yeah, uh, my, my, my mom would curse because um, growing up, me and a group of friends, um, became obsessed with a computer game that has been known to sort of destroy marriages and all sorts and that was um it was formerly championship manager but it's actually um, um football manager um and as a kid i wasted hours and hours i, I don't even want to count how many hours i lost to that game <laughs> um and yeah um so for anyone who doesn't know it's a it's a a football simulator game um, where you get to um, become a manager of a, of a football team uh, and the objective is is to sort of buy and improve um, your playing squads um, play games and you know ultimately sort of win leagues and trophies uh, and unfortunately this game has no end dates so you can start in the year that you started in and go into 2045 or something like that um, and bearing in mind that I was playing this game in the 90s um, that's a serious amount of time that you can give up um, but um, when I sort of look back at some of the principles that that I um, have adopted um, in my career I can actually see some of them started from playing this game so um, a lot of my friends, when they played it, they would take on the biggest teams. They wanted to be Manchester United. They wanted to be Arsenal. Um, they wanted clubs with lots of money. Um, and they wanted to buy the most glamorous players. So they wanted to have, I don't know, Ronaldinho playing for their club or a Messi playing for their club. So they would have Manchester United with all of the best collection of players around the world in their teams. Um, and they'd spend huge amounts of money um, to, to win um, I, my approach was completely different. Um, I would go down to the lowest tier um, of professional football in England to some um, side that anybody who wasn't on these shores wouldn't even know the name of the side. Um, and my, my mission was to build them up from there where they had absolutely no money. Um, I would normally, because the playing staff uh, weren't particularly brilliant, I would normally start by selling off the best asset in the team. Um, and then I would hunt around um, for the optimum stats that I could find on the free transfer market of players that would actually come to me. So um, the, the stats were generally from, from 1 to 20. Um, so in a really low league, if you had a striker with maybe pace 13, he was normally faster than everyone else in the league, so he'd get you quite a few goals. 
um, <laughs> and you know, I would build a squad up with um, very cheaply assembled but very um, specifically identified playing stats for people in particular positions. Um, and then we'd get promoted and then I would sell off those playing staff because they were at their peak value at the end of that season when you've been promoted and their value would drop as you moved into the league above. Um, and then I would regenerate the squad again and I would keep doing that right the way through. So you had Accrington and Stanley winning the Champions League three years in a row. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Uh, I I I I got a I have the same kind of uh, thing I did with like an F1 champions manager kind of yeah. game. So very similar. It just reminds me of there's a show with uh, Jason Sudeikis uh, on Apple TV, which is about a football team. I can't remember the name right now, but it's kind of similar. Like it's like basically uh, like a lower lower tier uh, football club in England who's like uh, you know trying to Ted get Lasso? back into. Is it the Ted Lasso? Ted Lasso. Yeah. Yes, yes, Lasso. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, awesome. Well, that's interesting. So you kind of figured out ways to like optimize, you know, optimize, optimize, and then you know, ship 100%. something and then sell. Hundred <laughs> percent, you know. And for me, it was it was all about processes. It was about spotting patterns. Um, it was pattern recognition. It was about attribute recognition and working out how you put different components together. Um, to get a positive outcome. So even though the individual components you had might not have been desirable, um, mm -hmm. actually were you to pair it with something of, 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 of beneficial or that complemented it, you could get quite desirable outcomes. Um, so I think um, being a product uh, manager, uh, generally you don't always have the perfect environment um, to be able to achieve excellence. Uh, there's always some form of compromise that you have to make. Um, maybe um, you don't have as good access to the customers. Maybe the time span that you have to generate a solution is limited. Um, maybe you don't have the, re the resources that you need or you don't have the skill sets that you need within the group. Um, and you're constantly having to compromise and finding ways to maximize the capabilities within the group that you have. Um, so that's kind of led me to doing quite a lot of different roles within within teams, um, um, you know, from, from time to time, um, the architecture, from time to time design, from time to time testing, um, you know, diff differences in stakeholder management, sort of user research, you know, all, all of those, those elements. And obviously when you have an ideal team and all those roles are filled, um, it's brilliant and it's great and you've got the perfect amount of time and you've got the perfect amount of budget. Um, very few of us um, have the luxury of those positions. There's normally um, a heck of a lot of compromise that goes into things. Um, but I think that mindset sort of stood me in a good stead um, for being able to identify how we could utilize the attributes within the teams to progress. No, that's so true. I think it's a use case for every head of product. You've got to maximize what you have whatever by whatever means necessary um let me jump into some some product management related questions <laughs> um you mentioned something about first principles uh and that's kind of the way that you operate so maybe first question is what what do first principles mean to you what are they and then i'll have some follow-up questions to that yeah by all means um so for me first principles is all about sort of stripping everything back um, 
there's a lot of noise out there. Um, we have lots of strategies and uh, ways forward. You know, um, Agile is a really simple manifesto, but there are so many um, um, artifacts out there that profess to have the answer um, for, for how we go about sort of developing things. Um, and they are effectively toolkits. They are a series of, of, of methods that we can use some or part of um, to, to find a way forwards. But in general, um, soft product development is, is a relatively simple notion. Um, we have a problem um, and um, we have um, a problem that affects certain individuals. We have a business that has a certain objective that it wants to achieve. And we kind of need to find the straightest line um, through that problem and, and achieving business objectives. Um, so quite often um, when I talk about first principles um, is about stripping everything back, going back to um, a whiteboard, being able to map out these individual problems and be able to sort of plot our way through um, to, to, to get into to the final answers. And, and, and generally in terms of um, the way that I work and my team to work, um, we try and um, eliminate the noise, um, give ourselves a clear picture of where we're going. And then we start to layer on all those other techniques to be able to build out. And that's, that's really the, the platform that we build from. And when it comes to problem solving, how do you strip down the main roots of like the issues or the problems that you identify? Is there any specific approach, framework? I don't know. There's like the five whys methodology. Um, there's like a few, but I'm just curious, how, how do you go about just looking at, you know, what, what you have to, to figure out and just like pinpoint exactly, okay, what is like the real, real problem there? Um, it's sort of along the lines of the five whys, um, but more in terms of, I think where, where we go, where I, where I tend to go to and what I try and uh, teach my teams to do is let's boil things down to the things that you do know. So we've got a problem, and at the moment that problem seems unassailable and unachievable. And let's say that that problem is 15 steps wide. And I know step two, and I know step seven but I don't know any of the rest of it. So at this moment in time, you say, this problem looks unachievable. We'll say, well, I know step two, and I know step two, these are immutables. Everything else in everything else in between is up for grabs. Um, so what I, what I tend to do is I say, okay, well, let's make an assumption that gets us from step one to step two, right? It doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong. Let's make an assumption. And then let's make an assumption between step two and step seven, because that's the next biggest gap. Um, mm -hmm. And then let's follow those assumptions through. And then along those ways, we'll say, actually, well, step three was wrong, but we've got a good step for step four. And actually I can now work out step four, five, six, that gets me to seven. And then I can work back and close the gap on step three. 
Um, so, so for me, the key thing is making uh, informed assumptions about where you're going. Use the data points that are available to you. Um, so in many cases, it will be um, if we're looking at um, a, a user-based system, what does, what does that user want to achieve? Can I get access to that user? If I can't get access to that user, how can we replicate that? Well, most of us use software and technology in all parts of our lives, uh, whether it be online shopping, online banking, uh, buying a house. Um, we use technology. So we're in positions to make assumptions. It's, it's just important that we're able to validate them. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's reasonable to assume that we should know what is a reasonable response time for... I don't know, browsing browsing a page or bringing back search results, because actually, what would we accept as users? Um, so they're, they're opportunities to make assumptions, and they're where we have the opportunity, we go out, we validate them with the most effective sources that we have. Um, also, technologically, um, you know, if there are um, technological steps that we want to take, can we map them out into the paper-based exercise? How do we validate those things as quickly as possible? If we have to commit to code, can we reuse? Can we stub things out? Um, and for me, it's about quick experimentation, um, not being hung up to get the right answer, um, but plot a path, try, fail, go again, um, but do it quickly. Um, and make sure that we take every opportunity to validate with the most effective sources that we have. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Um, I want to go back a little bit into your, your career to date that kind of led you into product. Um, if I recall correctly, you started off in project, project management, yeah. um, and you also had us, you know, some responsibilities around delivery. How did that help you? to become a product manager? Um, so most of the project roles that, that I had were typically, um, typically around change. Um, so generally you would start off with a small area that you were looking at um, and um, either the business or you would look for efficiencies. Um, you know, maybe something was new, um, there were inefficiencies, you would hear conversations that were going around the business that something that was supposed to work effectively, there was always a problem at this handover point, you know, maybe people were grumbling or somebody was complaining about, you know, what they had to do with, with some work that was handed over to them. Um, so many of the roles that I had were about how do we improve this process? How do we make it more cost efficient? How do we improve our ability to sell um, within this area? Um, and as part of that change, like I said, we, again, first principles, looking at the system end to end, um, looking at the different parts that are involved and finding out that John um, in in this department filled in a spreadsheet and then sent it over to somebody else and that was supposed to be it complete but actually when it came over to Steve um, Steve had to configure that spreadsheet in a completely different way add a whole new different set of variables and then send that on to Mavis down the corridor and Mavis then had to then input these numbers into a ta in, into a, a system that came out into the final report that 
that the manager wanted. And there's all these all these series of waste that was going on. Um, and working in that way and looking at how we improved process often led to uh, opportunities for system change or system development. Um, and a lot of the work that I was doing was around writing the specs for new systems that we could we could bring in or working with third parties and vendors to customize off-the-shelf solutions so that they would um, work within the environments within the organizations that I was in. Um, so I suppose I was in a position where I was kind of that customer, that customer um, having a problem within the organization um, and identifying um, the solutions that were needed and working with engineering teams to be able to have that solution. Um, and I suppose that that really sort of made the natural progression to I enjoyed more being on that technology side, solving those problems, being that voice for customers that knew they had a problem, but maybe didn't know how to articulate the problem. Mm. You know, the customer that said, you see this spreadsheet, I kind of want it on a web browser. And it's like, do you know what? I'm going to blow your mind <laughs> with what is possible. I'm going to blow your mind um, and, and, and taking it beyond just people sort of replicating things that they worked really hard on in the environments and worked well for them, but they knew they wanted some kind of an advancement, but they didn't know what technology could do for them. Um, mm -hmm. That was something that was really exciting for me. Um, and a lot of my early stage projects were very much um, internal product development um, and then sort of moving into your sort of more um, external product development. So um, developing um, uh, technology for consumers, um, uh, developing sort of um, content um, uh, content, and, and then moving into sort of more um, products as a service and, and um, and those sorts of areas in sort of direct product companies and in sort of more business to business. So, um, yeah, it, and the challenge is one that I've, I've always enjoyed. Um, and, it, and it's very much that case of being able to solve solve problems for customers that they don't fully know they have or they don't really appreciate they have. That's the mm -hmm. thing that has been really exciting for me. Through your time in... Um through your time in delivery that you've you've worked on different projects so what are some like common myths that you've seen come to come to be when people think about delivery and like maybe what holds them back from going and doing any kind of delivery work um i don't know if myths are the right word but in terms of the things that are challenging to delivery, um, the, the things that are real challenges to delivery is, the first thing is, um, right out, out the gate, is did you understand the problem you needed to solve? Um, right. one, of the, one of the most common um, areas that I've seen projects fail is not understanding what they needed to achieve. Um, and that manifests itself in a number of ways. Um, one of the first ways is having no idea when to stop, <laughs> um, having no understanding of when you've delivered something or when you're failing to deliver something, um, or whether the project should be killed. Actually, maybe it was reasonable that you didn't know, um, 
all the answers at the beginning or you didn't know whether it was going to be successful but part way along the journey it becomes apparent um, that 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 project or that deliverable isn't going to be successful it's not going to deliver what you want to do and the best thing for it is to kill that project and, and save that budget uh, or to 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 reassess is there another way that i need to do this based on the information that i have but if you don't have a clear idea of what you're trying to achieve um, it's really impossible to make those decisions so i think you know that is that's a massive one um that's that's a really really big one um also, um, having a really valuable metric for understanding how far you are through work. Um, mm -hmm. One of the biggest killers of projects that I've seen is oversized tickets. Um, <laughs> the first thing that I see if I see anything over five points is I want to see that broken down. Um, I like seeing small deliverable things that give you a chance of succeeding um, and give us quick turnaround times, quick feedback times. Um, it's it's one of the most horrible things. I spent a lot of time um, being parachuted into projects that were that were struggling. Um, so projects that projected to deliver over time or, or, um, or weren't seemingly delivering anything. Um, and the fastest way, um, and anyone who's worked with me in this capacity will probably chuckle to themselves because they say, Marlon's favorite thing is burning tickets. Um, so <laughs> backlogs, just kill, I just kill the entire backlog. Um, anything that is superfluous dies. Um, if it's important, it will reemerge again. Um, so I kill all superfluous tickets. Um, the first thing that I'm doing is looking to see how we claim points. So large tickets, right, what aspects of that has been delivered? Let's hive that off into another ticket. Let's split these out. This 20, 30 point monstrosity, let's break this down so that we've got deliverables. People get lost in huge tickets. Um, they're often too complicated. Um, they don't ask for help at the right times. We don't get the validation before you know it. We've lost so much time. And generally, it ends up becoming so complex that people kind of just lose what they need to do. So yeah, oversized tickets, um, bloated backlogs with, with things that you will never get to, um, massive, massive time wasters and massive drains on delivery capability. No, sorry. It's very true and very interesting. I could, I could definitely relate to that. Um, how has been, because I know you're non-technical, right? Um, in terms of your background, how has being non-technical helped you in your product journey? Um, it helps in a number of ways. Um, the first one, and and, and starting out in this uh, in this industry, the first thing is um, you have massive imposter syndrome. Um, so, although I've said that I spent the early part of my career in change management and sort of writing specs for systems, um, when you step on the other side of the fence um, and you're 
working with delivery teams and they're sort of talking about how they build things and actually they start talking about things that you haven't quite thought about so they start talking about these weird things called non-functional requirements and they're talking about security and you know um, <laughs> you know they're, they're talking about performance testing and penetration testing and you know load times and response times and it's like well Nowhere in the specs that I was writing were, were, were I talking about this. I was talking about the screens that I need and I need, you know, I need to be able to do this and I need to be able to log in in this way and I need these sort of permissions. Um, so all of these things start to be really complicated and people start talking about, you know, how your data is structured and, you know, how your data moves from one place to the other and how it's converted and manipulated into all these different formats. It becomes quite daunting because you realize there's a heck of a lot of stuff just about computer architecture um, and how these things come into being that you don't know. Um, and yeah, there was a huge amount of imposter syndrome. Um, but I think one of the things that I think is a good thing about me is the things that frighten me make me work scarily hard. Um, so I consume all knowledge of everything around me at all times because I hate being that person in the room that's letting everybody down and, and really shouldn't belong. Um, so, one, so one aspect is that. The other aspect um, for being non-technical that I think is advantageous is, um, and I say to my teams, if you can deliver such technology that I can understand and I can work with, anyone can use it. <laughs> so in terms of usability, um, I consider myself to be a technological EMP. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely terrible um, with with tech. Um, absolutely terrible with it. But for that reason, um, and there's a scene in there's a scene in Philadelphia. Um, Tom Hanks comes in and he's going to speak to Denzel Washington as a lawyer, and he turns around and says, "Explain your story to me as if I was a four-year-old." Um, and what I force people around me to do is explain things to me as if they were a four-year-old. Um, and in them having to simplify their explanation, one, I think it gives them greater understanding because having to simplify what they're doing actually solidifies their understanding of what they're doing. Um, being able to communicate that, some of the, the, the challenging, more technical aspects to me also gives me an understanding but also as a product person it gives me the ability to then be able to advocate for them in all of the areas of the business that i need to um so i think being non-technical forces us to speak at a, a common language um a common language point um i don't know how positive that is that i'm saying my common language point is that of a four-year-old <laughs> um, but yeah, being in that position, um, yeah, it, it, it helps us. It helps us simplify what we're doing in a way that makes it easy then to be able to communicate out to other audiences. Oh, that's very true. Everything in life, I, I, I frequently use the the kiss method: keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, with everything, so that everybody understands. Um, uh, last question: I wanted to have an opportunity for you, you to tell us a bit more about. Natasia. So how does it work? What's different compared to other bot solutions out there in the market? Okay, well, um, Natasia um, is effectively an agent um, intent analytics platform. 
Um, so as a system, it sort of protects um, customers' um, uh, websites and APIs and helps them uh, manage traffic on their site by sort of detecting whether the intent of the actor um, across those websites and APIs is malicious or preferred. Mm-hmm. Um, so in essence, we run a series of behavioral analytics uh, modules um, on all interactions uh, before they they um, they hit sort of customer APIs um, to kind of understand the patterns of behavior and whether or not they are the types of behavior that the customer is looking for. So we're effectively protecting against um, online attacks like account takeover, um, scraping attacks, scalping attacks. So, for instance, you know Nike bring out the latest edition of of trainers, and you you have a bot that will scalp all of those in sort of under a second. Um, you know our technology helps detect those actors from you know you yeah trying to get trying to get you the the latest uh, and and safeguards real customers from being able to get access to products um so yeah that's 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 sort of broadly what we do um we do that on a macro scale we sort of handle sort of billions of requests um per month for our customers and we're sort of broadly dealing with um sort of globally um based websites um across uh, multiple industries, telco, retail, financial services. That's really cool. It's, it's a very exciting. It's a very exciting industry and market. There's uh, tons of um, malicious kind of actors out there now. <laughs> I've dealt with now with a few recently, so I could totally relate. Um, a last question for you, Marlon. Uh, we talked about first principles. We talked about, you know, keeping everything simple, stupid, you know, explain it to me as a forward. I love these things. Any other one or two product lessons or principles that, you know, are are key to you uh, in terms of how you operate? Yeah, I think um, data, data, data. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've talked a lot today about first principles I've talked about about um, making assumptions um, and a lot of those things can seem quite internally focused it's sort of my opinion or team's opinion and what have you and we all know that actually to be effective in anything we kind of need to look outwards um, we need to want have an eye on who our users are um, what they need and how they work um, so for me, data is absolutely massive. Um, so understanding um, understanding what you're trying to achieve and what the criteria for success is um, and measure all the time, measure how you're, you're meeting up to those standards, um, whether or not you're looking at um, conversion funnels, um, whether or not you're looking at end-to-end times or load times um, you know or your performance measure at every single point of your product understand what metrics represent value for both the business in terms of the outcomes the business wants to achieve uh, but also for your end users as well um, so that you know that you're constantly delighting them um, and use that to drive the development of your service. You know, every business will always say, right, you know what, I want to add a, or I want to add a, but actually alongside those kind of business driven changes, 
look at things that push the needle think look at things that push the needle and the value that is is delivered to your clients and um, I think for me when you follow data it's really hard to make wrong decisions hmm. okay so just a follow-up question to that last one I promise is a lot of people say yeah data 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 but it's being data aware right yes. so like definitely the data is there as a reference point but how much of that is like in, intuition and gut in terms of like the actual decision that needs to be made from from that data oh yeah 100 percent um i think i think there's a lot of it that becomes from intuition and gut but an intuition and gut that is isn't just i feel but i am immersed in um you know the the teams that are making these decisions should be teams that are dedicated to the area that they're focused on so they understand what the user outcomes need to be they're immersed in the technology they know where the technical debt is they know the next four or five steps that they want to make in terms of the technology so decisions they're made are informed by um, that holistic path that they're taking the technology on um, so not only are they seeing changes, but they understand what those changes mean. Are they seasonality changes, so therefore not specifically impactful? Um, or are, are they significantly, um, significantly different uh, and therefore warrant making those changes? So I think you can use intuition when you have a body of information. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's important to immerse yourself and take all those inputs so that you understand what those data are telling you. Okay, awesome. Well, that was great. That was, uh, I think that was a, a lot of knowledge that was shared there today. Thank you so much, Marlon, for your time. Uh, and always thank you to our listeners for, uh, for tuning in. So I appreciate it. I think uh, it's, it's going to be a great episode. <laughs>